Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Luke Burgess. He's the author of a new book called Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life, which I found absolutely fascinating for reasons we'll uncover over the next hour. He's an entrepreneur, he's an author, and he's a teacher. Been involved in uh, many, many inquiries, many dimensions of life, and uh, he and I became friends, I guess, virtually through some seminars that INET held, like a conference in Hong Kong. But we've been talking over the last few months as he's prepared this fantastic book. The subtitle is called Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life, as I mentioned before. But I, uh, I can't, how would I say, you give yourself, what, is it five stars to play with? I'm pushing for, I'm pushing for five plus right here. So I'm excited that you would join me today. Thank you for being here. And uh, let's get down to, how do I say, the inspiration and the message. First off, what what is it that inspired you to bring this out to people? What what went on inside you? And then we'll talk about what what you want them to grasp or have a ladder to climb. Well, hey, Rob, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Um, this book was really the fruit of a process of personal transformation for me and a new way of seeing economics, a new way of seeing business, a new way of seeing the world and some of its conflicts and tensions, and most importantly, myself. So I graduated from an undergraduate business school. I went to NYU. I learned, you know, pretty typical uh, neoclassical economic theory and uh, went to Wall Street and didn't spend a whole lot of time on Wall Street. It was less than a year total. And then I moved out to California and was immersed in the startup world uh, for, for most of my 20s and was involved in co-founding several companies. But something was always off for me. And I couldn't put my finger on it while I was immersed in it. You know, we often don't see the structures that we're embedded in while we're inside of them unless we have some ways to extract ourselves or if we're fortunate enough to have good mentors or people in our life that can be honest with us and see things that we're, we're often too close to see. So in my late 20s, I, I had a realization that what was missing for me in my startup world and my investments was, was really humanity and, and, and the human person. And it took some nasty things going on. It took a 2008, the financial crisis and a meltdown and me having one of my companies blow up and having some fractured relationships forced me to take some time off. And to make a really long story relatively short, I ended up immersing myself in philosophy and theology. I spent three years living in Rome. I studied anthropology. I studied history. Um, I studied classics, the foundations. I wanted to get behind all of these assumptions and presuppositions that I never even questioned. I just took so many of these things for granted. You know, what's the purpose of business? What is pro all, all these things? I just took it for granted. 
and I had a real thirst for classical knowledge, classical wisdom. Uh, you know, if I could, uh, I, I teach part time at a at a business school today, and if you know, if I could design my own uh, business degree or uh, MBA program, I think I'd force everybody to to take one class on anthropology, one class on, on classical philosophy, uh, another on history. And that these things are just embedded because economics, we can't think of it detached from these more fundamental questions about what it means to be human. And that's what had been missing from me in my earlier years. So, you know, when I moved back to the States, I was sort of able to put all of this together. And I had a new outlook on, you know, what, what it means for me to be an entrepreneur, uh, what kinds of, of you know organizations and entities and, and ways of serving am I interested in to make the world a better place? And uh, desire, which is the topic of my book, desire is uh, kind of the the substrate that's underneath all of these things. It's, it's at the heart of politics. It's at the heart of economics. It's at the heart of uh, how we can achieve sustainability. But desire is such a fundamental uh, hidden quality of our humanity that we overlook it we never really talk about it we just assume uh, we, we we take our desires for granted we assume that we want what we want um, because you know we've just generated this desire ex nihilo ex nihilo out of nothing um, and that we sort of create th this reality in this autonomous way and you know my book gets at you know why that's actually not the case and it, it took a certain amount of me developing some humility that I didn't have in my early years, uh, some insights into uh, some insights into the, the the forces that work in the world that they don't necessarily teach you in business school. Yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, found a quote from my board member and uh, FT editorial board chair in the United States, Jillian Tett. She's got a new book out called Anthrovision which we talked about last week. And she had a, an epigraph at the beginning. It said, the least questioned assumptions are often the most questionable. And uh, I thought that might, uh, how to say, be a window into where we were going because when I'm looking at you as we try at INET to evolve economics, I see someone who's seen this building block called preferences that becomes a utility function that becomes demand which becomes integral to the market and in normative analysis the satisfaction of that is yours and it is serving you but when desire which formulates preferences formulates demand is something that can be influenced or something that can get onto a destructive trajectory. There's a whole lot of role for a different kind of economic analysis, a different sensibility about education, a different sensibility about what you learn in the media, what you're asked to read, and how you're educated. So you're, you're opening lots of cans of worms for us here at the Institute for New Economic Thinking by going right to what you might call the heart of the matter. Yeah, well, formalism in economics was, um, I think, I think these are your words, Rob, uh, the last time that we talked, you know, it's kind of a show horse that has covered up a lot of cracks, which the pandemic has exposed. And one of the things that these last 15 months have taught us, I believe, uh, is the, is our interdependency, uh, 
our the, the interrelationship of, of, of all of us, right? As, as humans and our relationship with the planet, our relationship with institutions, uh, which are becoming fractured. Uh, and the, the, the premise of my book is that the nature of desire itself is social and interdependent. And this is what Rene Girard, who is the, really the um, inspiration behind my book, a lot of the big ideas came from Girard, although I try to build on them in little ways and offer my own perspective. Uh, Rene Girard was, was the inspiration, and his fundamental insight is that the nature of human desire is not autonomous and independent, a product of this imperial self. This, it's, this, is a, this is, comes from our hyper-individualism uh, and, and it's given us a notion of human desire that is false. Girard calls it the romantic lie that I am the generator and shaper of all of my own desires. And his insight was that the nature of desire is in fact mimetic, that we uh, imitate the desires of other people because we're social creatures. We take our cues about what is desirable from other people uh, who, Im who imbue objects and unfortunately even people with desirability, right? We, we think about the poor, for instance, you know, they, they don't have enough models of desire. You, you, you know, every once in a while, the Mother Teresa comes along who is able to model that, that desire and that love, but for the most part, we don't have them. So this is an important concept to understand, I think, for economics. Uh, and, you know, behavioral economics has not explored the role of mimesis enough. Because if Girard is, is right, it means that the, the, the value of things, the way that we value things, is the product of a very complex social process. And that uh, it's not just, a, 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 I mean, I suppose you could argue that all of this is baked into some concept of utility, though I don't, I don't believe that it is. Um, that, we, you know, we arrive at our valuation of things through a complex social process and we'd better be aware of it or else our desires will be shaped by um, forces that we're not even aware of including bad actors uh, including people who are not looking out for our best interest or the common good and the first purpose of my book uh, is is just to bring awareness to, to this social nature of desire so that we can begin to have conversations about, you know, what does it mean to be human? Uh, how can the market serve our desires uh, more effectively? And by the way, it's not a one-way street. It's not as if we have desires and businesses serve them. We are involved in this reflexive process of generating and, and shaping desires. And one of the things I realized about my role as an entrepreneur is that I don't just do a bunch of market research and find out you know, what people, quote, want, and then deliver it to them. I have some agency. I mean, what they want could be destructive. What they want could not be serving the human person. Um, I'll let other people handle that stuff. And there's probably a lot of money to be made serving those needs, unfortunately. Uh, I'm interested in helping to make goods that are truly good and services that truly serve. And when I say that, I mean the, the integral good of the human person. Well, I'm laughing because as you were talking, you were going right through a whole bunch of things I excerpted from your text. And I want, I want to tell people uh, I had to learn the hard way 
there's a glossary at the end of this book with many of the key concepts. Go there first, read those, and then go back into the text from the beginning and feel the story. But feel the story where the, what you might call a lot of the definitions, which you can refer back to. But it was just, it was a great tour to, to go through that glossary. First excerpt, misrecognition in mimetic theory misrecognition or misknowing refers to the tendency of people or groups to get caught up in throes of mimetic desire, have their perceptions distorted, and to misidentify people or things as the cause of their problems. Let me take you back to 2016 in Detroit. I held a conference on race and inequality. A young man named Arjun Jayadev and I had done a paper where we were looking at the geography of what you might call ups and downs in the economy related to austere local budgets, globalization, automation, but whatever. From that, you can get survey data on economic insecurity. People in the geographic area are testifying at how they feel. That correlated in lockstep variations in economic insecurity with variations in racial animosity blaming the other as though that was the cause of your anxiety felt an awful lot like a misidentified thing in the context of real problems and peter Timmon went on to write a book he was part of that conference uh called about the vanishing middle class and he created this sensibility about a loop which is when you experience that distress, you attribute it to race, things like the school system start to get fractured. And then, in, a, in what Peter said, is a service economy where we might say 30% is in high margin services, 70% of the population is in low margin services. The ladder to prosperity. Remember W. Arthur Lewis talked about going from the farm to the manufacturing in the cities. Well, this was analogous going through the education system and transforming yourself into a knowledge intensive worker is devastated by a breakdown in the education system, which was happening particularly in these regions where racial animosity was rampant. So it was something, how would I say, that was very vivid to us at the time when we did that conference. But you, you I never, I never thought of the concept of that misrecognition, misknowing as succinctly as what you built. What I'm trying to say to my audience, our audience, excuse me, is that there's so many things in here that are the building blocks of understanding the world that we analyze, the world we're a little scared of right now, and the world we aspire to heal. And... Uh, you know, you talk about reflexivity. I think there's a guy named Soros who likes that term pretty well in the formation of INET. It played a big role. Uh, I think uh, there are lots of ways you define what you might call amplifying feedback loops, either positive or negative, that, uh, how do I say, change the dynamic of possibility or disaster. So there are a whole lot of... There's just so many beautiful things in this presentation and in the building blocks. 
And uh, the interesting thing to me is almost everything you do through the book has a punchline, maybe an unconscious punchline. But your statement, your quote from Antoine Saint-Exupéry says to this sailor, if you don't want to build a ship, if, excuse me, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Everything you did in this book points to a possible future. There's some mental work to do. There's some educational work. There's appealing to healthy desire as opposed to unhealthy desire as catalytic to social reaction. But it's, a, it's really quite powerful as a, what you might call, a, an explanatory dynamic of what we might be able to achieve in these frightening times. Yeah, it's really an appeal to desires. You know, I, I don't think we'll build the future that we want by, you know, blasting our opponents and, you know, telling people, you know, including our, in, including people that disagree with us uh, about solutions, um, you know, how, how terrible they are and how wrong they are. I think we can appeal to shared desires that we have as human beings. There are some desires that are common to all people, you know, the desire to be understood, uh, the desire for, you know, security and, and safety for their families, for, you know, a, a basic financial securities, um, you know, stable, to be in stable systems. Uh, and I think we, we're, we live in a time, you know, especially I think the pandemic exacerbated this a little bit. Uh, there's just a lot of finger pointing, a lot of that misrecognition that, you know, that you mentioned. And while, you know, I, I do think we need to be fierce in our diagnoses of the problems. And I think that we have a lot of, a lot, a lot of serious problems right now. But I, I believe that we're going to emerge from this through wanting something better. And, you know, business has a role to play in that. Politics has a role to play in that. Uh, but each of us does. I mean, I, and I, I believe really strongly at, at, you know, at the local level, a lot of the best stuff is going to happen, right? Um, so that, and I'm glad that, you know, the quote by St. Exupery, uh, as a sailor, I, I'm glad that, that one resonated with you. If it didn't, I don't know what would. Um, but that's been an image for me, a powerful image for me as an entrepreneur, as we think about building things that will be sustainable, that will last. If, if it's, if we're, people have got to, people are motivated in highly complex ways. Um, and those motivations can come and go uh, if there's not a real, a real desire there for, for lasting change. And one of the things I say in the book is like, you know, the, in order to achieve sustainability, we have to have desirability. There has to be, like people actually have to want these things rather than just being told that they're good. So there's a real, I, I, my, my vision of the human person is, you know, we're not just sort of rational creatures, we're emotional creatures. We have, you know, this effective dimension and sphere. And it's all, it's all gotta come, it's all gotta come together um, for the whole person, for the whole integrated person. And 
part of this book. I mean, I'm not against, uh, you know, rationalism at all, but that alone is not going to get us where we need to be because there's a lot of really, really smart people out there that are not as effective as they could be in, in, in sort of, you know, laying out a vision for the future. Because I think we've sometimes forgot about the, you know, the, the, the whole person, the fears and insecurities that drive decision making, um, and the highly complex systems that we're embedded in. And until we're willing to have honest conversations and not reduce them to the scapegoats or, you know, to blaming other people, uh, we're not going to be able to move beyond the situation that we're in. Yeah, we'll take an example. Uh, climate change. Uh, Robert Pollan recently made a podcast with me about the resistances to climate change. And he said, in essence, systemically, we've got to move. But a whole lot of people look at things like the decline of Detroit, where I grew up, and there was no adjustment assistance. Imagine sitting in West Virginia right now, and everybody's preaching climate change. But are you going to take care of me in that transition, is what they're asking. Those are real concerns. For them, their family, which you might call the atrophy of skills they've developed through their craft practicing over the years. And so I guess one of the hard parts here from the framework you've been describing is you can't inspire with negative imagination entirely. Oh, the world's going to end global warming. We're all going to, you know, perish. That is a form of dread you got to have a, a way of seeing how you could solve it in order to engender some hope. And you've got to take care of those resistances that Bob Pollan and others talk about in order to get there. And how, how you teach, if you will, that there's light at the end of the tunnel that isn't some abstract thing, but actually gets into the heart of the resistant, I think is part of the part of what your framework embraces. Yeah, and there's this, there's this wonderful biblical phrase, you know, for lack of vision, the people perish, you know. That's right. And, and we, we, need, we need the vision. We need the vision. Yeah. I uh, mentioned to you before we started this that I have a, a daughter I was working with on her Chinese, her Mandarin Chinese lessons today. But I thought some of the uh, passages in your, you have a chapter on transcendent leadership, which I think is beautiful. And I'll come back to various pieces of it through this conversation. But you talked about Maria Montessori taking on a daunting task with many, many children in a, I think it was in Rome, in a place where there were many children and not enough support infrastructure. Older children were gone to school. And how she inspired, how she, so, and I'll use your words, she unshackled the children's imagination, allowed them to learn according to their natural curiosity and wonder. She allowed thick desires to form in them, not least of all a thick desire for learning by not quenching the flame of desire before they could spread and grow in intensity. Tell me, first of all, what's thick desire mean for Sure. How does that phrase? Well, in order to understand thick desire, we've got to understand thin desire. And, you know, what, what, is that, what does that mean? And in the book, I describe thin desires as these highly mimetic 
desires. Um, ephemeral, where we've sort of adopted desires uncritically without discerning where they lead, without discerning whether they lead uh, to destruction, to depression or misery, or whether they lead to human connection and, and fulfillment and sustainable solutions to problems. So thin desires are just kind of the ones that, that we adopt. Uh, we kind of just go along with the crowd. We, go, we do what's easy. Uh, and in my life, certainly, I've, I've had plenty of those thin desires. I started a few companies and was disillusioned with them within a couple of years because I, I hadn't really unearthed you know, what really mattered, what was really important to me. And I learned my lesson the hard way a couple of times. Um, you know, and thin desires come from uh, often from seeing other people uh, as as rivals. You know, I mean, how many people have sort of chased something uh, to win or you know to to prove that they could beat somebody else? Uh, you know, so the, uh, uh, one of the themes in this book is rivalry, and it's the idea that mimetic desire leads to uh, false scarcity. I mean, there's there's objective scarcity. Um, but there's also subjective and false scarcity, and it's a scarcity that we create through mimetic desire when we begin you know, um, you know, pursuing the same things as somebody else and play the zero-sum game where we only win if they lose. So you know, th- these are all driven by, by thin desires. Um, that's not the way to build a better future. The thick desires are the ones that you know, Maria Montessori recognized in her children. These are the ones that are, they're sort of, they go really deep in, in human nature, right? I mean, they're, they're the desires for some of those things that we named earlier in our conversation, right? The desire to be uh, understood, the desire to be loved, the desire to, to grow into the fullness of yourself. So she takes over this school and she's got, a, it was a housing project in Rome uh, in the early 20th century. And she was told that these, these students, these kids were just absolutely kind of a lost cause, completely helpless. And, you know, other teachers had tried, the parents had tried, and they just scolded them and told them how, how just bad students they were and just how undisciplined they were. Uh, they were running all over the place. And Montessori, uh, I, I tell this anecdote in the book because it sounds silly, but I think it illustrates an insight that she had. She decided to give them a lesson one day on how to blow their noses. And this little lesson changed the disposition of these students. It absolutely changed them. And she gave this little lesson knowing that, uh, and she had been observing them and some of the shame and guilt that they'd experienced around having runny noses. And most adults their whole life had just told them that they're gross and thrown a handkerchief at them and told them to, you know, take care of themselves. And Montessori realized that these are, these people want to be taken seriously. These children want to be taken seriously and they have a a, a deep desire to become respected adults and they want to grow and they want to be treated that way. And I'm going to teach these children um, how to, you know, how to blow their nose and she had, had this fun little lesson. She, she made them laugh. Uh, and she, she showed them a, a way to do it. And the students, you know, she was expecting, like, no big deal. And the students watched her give this lesson with rapt attention and awe and wonder. And when she was done, they just thanked her profusely for having shown them the dignity <laughs> of this little act and 
chased her out of the school at the end of the day and then, you know, ran all around the city showing everybody this new adult thing that they knew how to do, right? So she recognized some desire, these, and I, I would call it a transcendent desire that transcended the reading, writing, and arithmetic of the day. Um, just the skills, even the discipline, it transcended getting them to sit in their seats. You know, those are all nice things to, to be able to do as a teacher. But she was reaching down and realizing that, you know, what these what these little humans really yearning for is is a sense of dignity that you know nobody has been able to give them yet. And I think this little kind of silly little lesson is, is actually powerful. And we can translate that into so many different parts of our society, our life, and our education system. Yeah. And it doesn't uh, stop in kindergarten or third grade. No. Uh, one of the uh, books that I've cited frequently recently uh, the author Jane Jacobs, uh, her last book was called Dark Age Ahead, and she had a chapter called, number third chapter, Education Versus Credentializing. And her premise implicitly was, what are people doing in these so-called learning institutions? They're paying huge tuition to get a credential so they can survive or be picked in an economy that's highly unequal? Are they actually learning? Are they becoming citizens? What I guess she didn't include is this notion of mimetic desire. And one, one of the excerpts from your book, you cite two or three different times, Toni Morrison, but she's describing in one passage about her writing students and how they're how would I say, uh, so much subject to whether it's their peers or evaluators or what have you, that she was a bit, I, I would just say, taken aback by not, have, not having their inner voice or their inner purpose. And uh, I, th I found it very interesting. They, uh, and she was saying they were really risk-averse to imparting any what you called, I believe, or what you quoted her as calling, uh, they talk about pioneering criticism, but unwilling to pass judgment on paper about a book that isn't widely reviewed, where they can kind of tap into the consensus and mirror that. And so there's a, there's a deep insecurity, there's a deep interactivity about, how do you say, becoming an expert or becoming called an expert, that I found that passage very, very haunting, because it's more reaching to conformity out of dread than it is exploring creativity and imagination. And I'll just, I want to frame this because you talked about uh, this in relation to the artist and how artists are people who get you to see differently. They, I think you described an artist making a painting at a seaside or along a river and getting you to see things you wouldn't have otherwise seen. That artist, I guess the ingredient I would call it, has courage to illuminate for you something you wouldn't have seen as opposed to Toni Morrison's students who are trying to get a pat on the head for agreeing with 
what you might call uh, conventional wisdom. Yeah, and these conformity is the word that comes to mind, and the power of conformity in our culture. You know, these students that Toni Morrison is describing were just terrified to be the first one to speak. And I, you know, I think this is highly relevant uh, in the world we live in today. Um, you know, you ask me, you know, what I think about some, you know, geopolitical issue and, uh, you know, I'm sort of terrified to, to just give you my honest opinion until, you know, I, I know what the other people in the room think, you know, because I don't want to be singled out. So, you know, the ability to have honest conversations, to be able to express our mind, this is really important. And she was seen, I mean, it's decades ago, she was seen even in literary criticism, her students who considered themselves independent um, and who, who, you know, believed in the, this, the pioneering importance of, 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 of their work were, were just not able to to, to do it without a model. They were reliant on models, um, not only of thought, but, but of desire. And this is a premise of the book that, you know, we are always looking for models, ideological models, but most of all, the ones that are hardest to identify are, are models of desire. And I, I have to say, I, I've been reading, uh, you know, so we're talking about education a little bit here. I was reading Albert Murray in, in, in his book Omni Americans just over the last week, and you know he tells a story of um, of of, of African American children in inner city schools, and people are looking at the data and the numbers, and you know while they're, they're they're not performing quite as well in these areas, and he says, you know, what if what if this had nothing to do with um, you know with their performance? And everything to do with the level of effort they, that they were willing to put in, because maybe they're rejecting the models that they've been given and that they're told that they that they should aspire to, and they're rejecting those. So, you know, this I thought it was a illuminating example, right, of 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 how these things go really really deep, and there's these complex forces that are motivating us as as humans, and you know we often just kind of fall back to very reductionistic uh, explanations for these things. Well, there were, uh, at the time of the uh, uh, great financial crisis, there was a great deal of criticism of financial theory. This idea that uh, you were doing a dynamic optimization to a known future. And uh, and today's price was just backward induction, a mathematical exercise from that all-knowing, which you might call uh, transparent crystal ball. And uh, I, I noticed that you uh, cited Israel uh, Kirshner once in the book, and I wanted to bring that in to bring a little economics into this education about, uh, he said, according to Kirshner, in economics which seeks to grapple with the real-world circumstance of open-endedness must transcend an analytical framework which cannot accommodate genuine surprise. What Frank Knight calls radical uncertainty, or Keynes in his theory of uh, treatise on probability, uh, called ontological uncertainty, these ingredients feel to me, or that, that vision, is standing next to something we might call demagoguery. And then, and you're talking about people being emotional creatures. If they're emotional creatures, when they're fearful, 
having someone come up to them and say, don't worry, I know the way, can be reassuring, even if it's false, until it's, until it's unmasked as having been a demagogue. And I think uh, a lot of people in the humanities and parts of the social science are very critical of economics, despite its capacity to illuminate, for being a little too dogmatic about things that we can't know. Yeah, I agree. And you and I have both uh, talked about, I can't get you out of my head, you know, um, Adam Curtis's documentary, you know, I, I, there's, there's so much happening that we don't understand right now. I mean, I, I don't think we understand the, the digital ecosystem that we're embedded in, the way that this is changing um, capitalism. You know, we have a bit of an oligarchy right now. I, I you know, the, the, we've never quite, I, in my opinion, uh, I know the word unprecedented is, is a little overused right now, but it, do, it does seem like something is different this time. It, it really does. Um, and it, I, I think there's many, there are many people that I think uh, in times of uncertainty, you know, mimesis uh, increases and, and people are looking for something to latch on to. So in a way, it's a perilous uh, position to be in. I think, you know, um, people's desires are... are um, somewhat um, susceptible to, to being manipulated in certain ways um, through the media and through through business and, and through through this digital technology, but with with this kind of threat, uh, you know, comes opportunity. And and I think you know we we uh, certainly I think it comes through in the book that you know I'm uh, I think that this is a chance for us to reevaluate. Kind of the way that we're, we operate as 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 people, because we seem to know, like you know, we're going to have to develop some whether it's virtues, uh, whether it's some common language and understanding uh, in order to move forward. And you know, we can't necessarily rely on you know Google and Facebook, uh, you know, to 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 be the benevolent <laughs> companies that they sometimes want us to believe that they are, right? So what do, what do we do about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, I remember you said one of the excerpts that made me chuckle. Big data is the place where the entrepreneurial spirit goes to die. <laughs> what were you talking about there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that has to do with Israel Kirzner. And I, I probably most of your uh, viewers and listeners know who Kirzner is, but case somebody doesn't you know he's he's a, an economist at NYU for many years who uh, in my opinion is kind of the the leading economic thinker about entrepreneurship and and the role of the entrepreneur in the economy and in, in society uh, he talks a lot about what he calls entrepreneurial entrepreneurial alertness uh, being able to kind of see things that are outside of the existing paradigm. That's where this, you know, element of, of surprise and reflexivity comes into play here. There are a lot of things that we don't know. Um, and, you know, the, the future is uh, the, the problem with, with big data is that I, it, it will, it, it can't create anything genuinely new, in my opinion. This is the, the this is a, a human, uh, you know. It's one of the most beautiful things about about a human being is that we're able to to create and to co-create and and to to build things um, that sort of uh, ex expand our existing reality and bring new new value into the world. 
and in an increasingly sort of analytic mindset, um, we will will be. I think it could lead to a relatively small-spirited way of looking at humanity's needs um, in terms of the, the, the kind of fulfilling their base, basic needs to placate people and to make them, you know, quote, happy in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that's not going to allow them to be fully alive because computers do not understand, especially the way that we, we program computers, uh, are not going to give free kind of reign to the human spirit. Um, that's something that, you know, the technology, it's not a problem that technology can solve. And my fear is that we're trying to solve problems that technology created with just more technology. Now, I think technology is, is, is a good thing and it's led, it's, you know, pulled a lot of people out of poverty. It's led, it's done, it's a lot of good for the world, but we can't solve fundamental human problems with better algorithms. Right? That's an imminent system, and it will we'll just get trapped inside of it if that becomes our default go-to mechanism. And the human spirit is bigger than that. Well, the uh, writer Eugene McCarraher, who I've had on the podcast, wrote a book called The Enchantments of Mammon, which was essentially how secular markets replaced the church and God and religious belief for a time and started to become equivalent to worship. And there are other people like Richard Stivers written a book called Technology is Magic, or David Noble, who was one of my teachers at MIT as a young man, uh, The Religion of Technology. And it's essentially, as man has the illusion, they become their own god. This clinging to belief in technology, which in all likelihood embodies both good and evil, uh, but they would cling to the notion that that's where salvation would lie. Right. And um, if I, you know, if I understand Noble correctly, uh, I haven't read the book, um, but there is a great book out there that's called How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read. I, I recommend it. I, I, forget, I forget the name of the guy that wrote it. I got to get that one. Yeah, no, it's, it's actually it's a great book. Um, and if I understand it right, though, isn't he saying that, you know, there's not just this divide. It's not like religion and technology. In fact, technology sort of came, came out of, uh, you know, as a creation of man who's a religious being and that, the, that there's not this clean line, right, that we should yeah, understand yeah. it as being intertwined, right? Yeah. Oh, I think that's right. But what he, he did have, which you might call a bit of a warning, that we had taken something that was a tool and transformed it into a, a deity. And therefore, we're, we might say, potentially less discriminating in how uh, we employed it, how we would, in, in essence, uh, let it have effect on society before we judged it, as opposed to, like the Food and Drug Administration, testing it out and see how it affects society before we let it blossom. And he, he had all kinds of different facets to his his awareness but it, it really was about uh, again making it a tool not a deity uh, so that it, it did serve mankind which there's obviously is great potential for uh, I want to move to your uh, well first of all I, I remember you had a, a wonderful quote from uh, Ursula uh, 
K. Lagun. Laguin. Laguin. Right. Hard times are coming when we'll all be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now, to other ways of being, and even imagine real grounds for hope. We will need writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, realists of a larger reality. That seems like what people are beckoning, what they're yearning for, and that is a walkway from, for me into your chapter on transcendent leadership. I have been very inspired in recent months by a book that uh, Bill Moyers had turned me on to called The Recovery of Confidence by John W. Gardner. This was a gentleman who was a Republican, but was the head of health, education, and welfare during Lyndon Johnson's administration, where many urban riots, Watts, Detroit, Newark, and beyond, as well as the assassination of Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, turbulent conventions, and which you might call the prelude to a counter-reaction, which some have called the Southern strategy when Richard Nixon was elected. And I would say uh, Gardner had this very sensitive, intuitive kind of lateral pattern recognition, bringing implicitly the emotions into the mixture didn't have the framework that you have in this book, and that's where I, that's where I want to bridge to. But he was talking about the healing of a society. Everybody was anxious about the degree, breadth, and danger of dysfunction. So you've got a model, a vision of a process of transcendent leadership. What, what should the young people in my Young Scholars Initiative aspire to build so that they can fill that, those shoes of John W. Gardner and go beyond? Somebody asked me why I, as an entrepreneur and as somebody who teaches business and economics, why I feature so many artists and writers in the book, uh, like Le Guin's quote, and you know, she's even talking about artists and writers. I think part of the reason was because I was uh, having a hard time finding a model of the kind of uh, sort of transcendent leader that I think we need from, from the world of business, for instance. Um, and I think the humanities have an important role to play in this process of transformation, you know, making business more human, um, you know, uh, just caring about, you know, uh, caring about everybody. Um, nobody's safe until until we're all safe, you know, um, and uh, and that's that's the vision. I th and I think the humanities are critical. When my students ask me for books to read uh, in the business school, I, I usually recommend that they read some, you know a lot of classic literature before they read any modern business books. Um, I might I might throw in one, a testament of hope, the collected writings of Martin Luther King, because there he had and you you used King as a model in that chapter, I recall, uh, because in, in essence, he went larger than himself in his vision and all kinds of things that uh, he envisioned in the last three years of his life. Vincent Harding wrote a wonderful book called The Inconvenient Hero as he challenged the war, as he challenged what he called militarism racism and materialism as a system uh, that was in which racial 
tensions were embedded and amplified. Uh, but you had Martin Luther King in that in the Testament of Hope. I think how do you say your business students, if they're in that what we might now call the ESG world, economy, society, and governance. He's an ESG spirit. He is. I, I agree. And, you know, and civics is important, too. You know, we often you can graduate from high school today and, and you know, you might take economics 101, but, you know, you, you, you may have never had a, a course in civics. You might not understand the relationship to institutions and the role that they play. And, you know, this is important. Um, you know, by the time students get to college, um, a lot of their ideas are formed. Uh, you know, this is important, you know, I think younger and younger to, to cultivate a sense of civic responsibility. And, and um, you know, th this chapter on transcendent leadership, I do cite King. Um, I think there, there does seem to be kind of a loss of transcendence in the world. And I think part of that is, you know, re more and more people, you know, don't, don't profess a, a religion, although I think that everybody's a religious being at heart. Um, but I think that with the loss of some transcendent models, and when I say transcendent models, I, I, I think of some ones that humanity's traditionally had. Um, you, know, it, you know, the saints have served as kind of transcendent models. Um, there, there are many. There are many throughout history. But it, it seems like we, we've sort of had a loss in models that everybody agrees on. It used to be that everybody agreed on, on sort of certain models of what it means to be human, certain virtues, uh, certain ways of living. And now there's, I mean, one of the problems with our society is that very few people can come to any kind of agreement about, you know, who provides a model. I mean, people can't agree on the Pope, right? <laughs> He's like, I mean, I, so I think that there's, um, th that, we, that we have a thirst for that, right? Because in, in the world where we lack any, um, sort of transcendent models, we, we have no choice but to turn to the, the ones that are either to our rivals and we, we you know, play a constant game of kind of identity. If you're this kind of person, then I have to be this kind of person that I think leads to, to you know, kind of nowhere. I think leads to kind of a, 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 st a sort of a stalemate or a zero-sum system. Um, so transcendent leaders, transcendent leadership, it means it's a cultivation of transcendent desires that go, that are not satisfied with the state that we're currently in, that, you know, you read history, you look for, you know, when, when has this been done right? Uh, who are the people that were able to inspire uh, humanity? And, and, you know, what, what tools and tactics did they use? What, you know, Martin Luther King is a great example. Um, I think we need to return to some of those things. And, you know, we... I find we seem to be neglecting history. There's not as much of a focus on it. I think we have a lot to learn from it. Um, history is is also transcendent in the sense that it transcends the milieu that we're, that we're caught in. And we, we can tend to be very, very myopic, right? Very myopic and uh, assuming that the solutions are only going to come from the usual suspects. And I think we've got to expand our universe of models, expand our universe of ideas, Look, look deeper, look, look wider. Uh, I mentioned, you know, four or five different kind of traits, characteristics of, of this kind of transcendent leadership that seem to be common to these kinds of people. Uh, one of them, one of the distinctions that's made in this, in this particular chapter of the book is, you know, the difference between the kind of leaders that uh, encourage 
calculating thought and, and constant um, analytical solutions versus those who are able to uh, develop a, a way of meditative thought. And this is a distinction that, frankly, comes from the philosopher Martin Heidegger. He talked about meditative thought, the importance of being able to, rather than immediately uh, looking for solutions and uh, rather to, to, to get from point A to point B, we have to go through an intermediate stage. And it means dropping down deeper into our reality, uh, meditating on it, understanding the different layers of complexity that are involved in it. Uh, and sitting with it for a while it doesn't mean you don't take action. It doesn't mean that you you know you don't take risks, um, and be open to surprise and wonder. It means that you have the a, the disposition uh, of 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 sinking down deeper and understanding the different layers. It seems to me like we're not doing that. The world is very reactionary. Um, you have very few people. I mean, at least our publicly visible uh, mo most of our leaders um, do not seem to. You know, to be willing to do that that hard and difficult work. Now, those people are around. I think we need more of them in, in the public sphere. Um, but it doesn't seem to be the kind of virtue that that is prized in your your typical CEO today. For, to give you one example, right? They they act quick. They're fast. Um, you know, they look at the data. Uh, I, I'm more comfortable around the kind of leader who has. The contemplative life, who's you know, who has, who makes room uh, to just not always have to um, be chasing the next the, the the next solution to please investors or the market or whatever it is, but is willing to kind. Of, sometimes you have to suffer. Sometimes you have to go through some really difficult things to be to lead to the kind of real transformation that's going to last rather than just putting band-aids on problems tell me what comes to your mind when you hear the word empathy the first thing that comes to mind is a story that i recount in the book about a gentleman who uh, i had an highly unlikely night of empathy with um, and opened my eyes to some different values of mine that I, I hadn't been uh, aware of as I was leading a successful company. Um, and we were sort of engaged in a, uh, a pretty nasty financial dispute. And <clears throat> I didn't know how to resolve it in a uh, well, certainly was never taught in business school how to resolve this particular situation. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing they teach you because the, the solution ended up being a human one. And it ended up being, and I don't want to give away the story because it, I, I spend a good deal of time in the book telling it. But I can say that me and, me and Dave, who's the gentleman's name, um, got past a block that we had that had become a sort of a dangerous scenario uh, by listening to one another at a deeply human level uh, without having to agree with one another, right? I mean, the, the kind of the essence of empathy is being able to enter into another's experience without necessarily adopting it and agreeing with it and, and you know, claiming it as our own. It's just entering into it so as to be able to understand it. And that's the first thing that I think about because that, that particular experience 
made me realize the importance of empathy as my role as a leader and any leader's role, um, the, the willingness to be able to listen and to have those difficult conversations. I remember uh, sometime during the pandemic, I watched a video of the kind of life and success coach, Tony Robbins, and he described uh, an experience that he heard about, I guess, from Mikhail Gorbachev, where he said that Gorbachev and Reagan knew that it was time for a major reduction in the nuclear arsenals for the good of mankind to reduce the danger of what Daniel Ellsberg calls a nuclear winner. And they got on the airplane and they started to bicker. Gorbachev picking apart the fault lines and problems of capitalism. Reagan taking apart the Soviet Union and that model of communism. And it was getting more and more irritating and more and more difficult. And then as Robin tells the story, I think through the eyes of Gorbachev, Ronald Reagan got up and he went to the restroom on a moving airplane, came back and sat down and said, hi, my name's Ron. I think there's some good work we can do together. And they shifted gears. He reestablished that sense of empathetic connection and purpose, and they broke out of that negative spiral. And I, I thought it was, a, how do they say, they went on and did a very powerful uh, set of arms control agreements. I wish we could do more of. But, but that, that way of what you might call snapping out of things, you use a word often in the book called discernment. And as you're trying to, what you might call, put together your own sense of desire, maybe build yourself into a transcendent leader. But also, for someone like myself, not quite as immersed in the mimetic processes as an author like you, how can I discern? That's, let's just say that mimetic process is present. You've convinced me. How can I discern between a negative mimetic spiral and a, and a positive one. Yeah, discernment is different than decision-making because discernment comes prior to the decision-making, which literally means to cut away. But in order to know where to cut, you know, you have to know where to see, where to see the line. And when it comes to desires, you know, desires cannot be uh, you know, you can't arrive at a at a decision certainly through calculation. Uh, I had a, a really good friend of mine who who had a, a bit more of the calculating mindset. He was an engineer in Silicon Valley, and uh, you know his his approach uh, to to the decision of whether to get married to a particular person was to kind of you know take a very the very scientific approach. And you know this, this, you can't you can't scientifically derive that because that is a desire and that's that's the kind of thing that needs to be discerned so you know there there are many um, ways to do this and there's a rich tradition in um, well in my tradition I'm Catholic um, of, of in the spiritual tradition especially Ignatian spirituality of discernment been many many books that have been written on this and uh, I, I put a couple of those little kind of exercises and ways to discern in the book and you know simple ones are you can see the fruits of of 
you know, where your desires are, are, are leading you. You know, if you sit with them, if you take the time to sit with them and probe them and examine them for a little while, you know, are they stirring up uh, peace or are they, are they like, what are they appealing to us at the deepest level? Are they appealing to our sense of pride? Are they appealing to our uh, ambition? Are they, are, are they appealing to our desire, you know, to make a gift of ourselves and, and to contribute to the common good. I think it's kind of like learning a new language, you know, the, the more that we sit with our desires and the more that we probe them and ask questions about them, uh, the more we learn the, the language of those desires and, and the, the, the tone and tenor of their voice. I think of desires as having a voice, you know, and, and, you know, what does that voice do to me? When I hear the voice of a desire, does it cause me anxiety? Does it cause me peace? Um, you know, and it's funny, I'm talking about this as one who's about to get married in, in, in less than two months, you know, so, um, and, you know, one of the classic ways, you know, to, to do this is to, as you begin to, to go down the, the road of, of pursuing a certain desire, I mean, this could be, a, you know, a career change, it could be a relationship with a person, it could be uh, activism, it could be, you know, something that you want to change that you want to make in the world, whatever it is. You know, one of the ways, you know, de death is a real, it brings a lot of clarity to, to the way that we spend our time in this world. And, you know, I think Steve Jobs said this in his famous commencement speech. Um, you know, you, we can do very simple things like imagine ourselves in our deathbed and we look back at this particular time in our lives. We're discerning whether to pursue this desire or not to pursue it. And you'll, you'll, you'll tend to have a pretty good idea of whether that's the kind of desire that you want to pursue or not in terms of whether or not it's the kind that you would be proud of, the kind that will give you fulfillment uh, closer to the end of your life. In your uh, chapter on transcendent leadership, you talk about the need for quiet space, like you've mentioned, that meditative side. But there, there's also a uh, thing which often psychologists talk about not being a pleaser, finding your true self. And you, you have a section about filtering feedback. So there, there, I guess what I'm getting at is there's, this, there's a part of this that's discovery, that's discernment, but then there's a part of, how would I say, testing things out in the world but there's also a part of essentially what's, what's your spine, what's your courage, what's your inner conviction that have, all these things have to be put together in this mimetic framework that you describe. And how, would you, how do you filter, filter feedback is what I'm saying and maintain your independence but maintain your receptivity to learning at the same time? Well, I think this is a case of both and. Uh, you know, we, we, we talk about the reflexivity of desires, uh, the reflexivity of, of reality, and it's both and. There's a, there's a process of discernment, and then you, you take action, and then you, you learn from that, and you, you discern again, right? You, you, you take that feedback, um, and you're constantly evolving, constantly evolving. But when it comes to there are certain things in life where if you have if you've identified a, a thick desire you know to you, you i mean one word for this is calling right you've identified just something that you feel like you have to do in the world and you know if you don't do it 
you know, damn it, nobody else is going to do it. <laughs> it's lost to the world forever. And it's just something that you, you just can't not do it. And you just feel the fire in your gut. And, and you've, you know, you've, you've realized that this is driven by, by something thick, right? Something you can sink, sink your teeth into, something that you, you'd be happy doing for the next 20 years. You get to a certain point. I think Martin Luther King is a good example of this, right? I mean, imagine if he uh, had not been able to take um, to criticism and, and, and filter the kind of feedback that he, he would get from people that didn't understand what he was trying to do, that didn't understand his mission, his vocation. Uh, writing this, writing any book, I tell you, I mean, writing this book was an exercise in having to filter feedback. Uh, I mean, from the very beginning of it, I would get things like, well, you know, uh, people on the right aren't going to like this. People on the left aren't going to like this. And, uh, and you start, if you start listening to everybody like that, I mean, it's the worst possible thing <laughs> that you can do as a writer. Because, uh, I mean, it's paralyzing, right? You can't, you can't speak the truths that you feel that are just burning up inside of you. And, you know, you try to make everybody happy and you either just write a really boring book uh, or you just kind of lose yourself in it. Or maybe you write a book that, you know, I don't, uh, it's just, a, it's a perilous, at, at the, at you, or you lose your soul and you write a bestseller. Okay, so I think this is, I'm just using the example of the book because I just finished writing one. And I think this applies to starting a business. I think this applies to a career in politics. I think this applies to the work that you do at INET. Like what, what is the mission at a certain point um, you know, we have decisions to make about the kind of feedback that is important for us to hear. And we have to have the awareness of knowing um, when we're misunderstood or when the feedback is not coming from a place of, you know, of love, of empathy, of genuine understanding, uh, or people that may, may actually be trying to subvert us or take our eye off the ball. Hmm. Well, one of the passages that I most enjoyed in this book was right at the end, where you talked about the process of writing. I'm involved in a California Sausalito-based uh, writing group. And uh, you talked about Gerard said, he believed that the best novelists read their first drafts and see right through them. They see the first draft as a put-up job, an unconscious attempt to deceive their readers and themselves about the complexity of their desires. And you refer to Stephen King. And uh, the then he goes on, you go on, the experience of reading the first draft devastates and delusions the author, striking a blow at their pride and vanity. And this existential downfall is the event that makes a great work of art possible. <laughs> I just think that's fantastic because when we talked about discernment and filtering and mimetic desire, which is interaction between people, and then you go into the well, you very often take into the well with you all the echoes of your recent interaction. And, and after that first draft, which is an, what I might call an excavation, to take the time to scrutinize yourself, give yourself feedback, and then evolve if you don't go to that place, you're not going to write a great book. And I want to say to you, with all my heart, this time you wrote a great book. And, and, but, but thank you for sharing that piece of process at the end. Because I know it is, I just know intuitively it's a reflection of what you went through. And you shared that with future authors, which allows them 
to rise to a higher place as well. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. You know, it's funny that the, that the word disillusion has such a negative connotation, isn't it? Right. I mean, you would think that to to become disillusioned, to become free of illusions, would be a good thing. <laughs> That's right. Um, but you know, there there is that process, and the important thing is learning from it and um, achieving a deeper level of honesty. Right. A deeper level of honesty, commitment to the truth. Uh, come what may. Uh, and we need more of that. We need, I think we need more people with the courage to, to speak the truth, um, and, you know, and, and, and to continue, you know, fighting. So I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to read it. Um, you know, we're having this conversation a couple of weeks before it comes out. So I'm in that nerve wracking period right now. Um, but this has been a real pleasure. I, I, I truly feel a, a sense of kindredness to, to what you're doing and, to, and, and to, and to INET. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, uh, grateful for this chapter today and it's the beginning of hopefully many uh, forms of collaboration and your education your transcendent leadership inet is very happy to be associated with thank you we'll talk again soon all right thank thanks, you Rob. bye-bye Bye. and check out more from the institute for new economic thinking at ineteconomics.org And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing